Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Jonathan Moreno will join us to discuss body politics. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, we're very pleased today to have on the program Professor Jonathan Moreno. He is David and Lynn Silfen University Professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He served as a senior staff member for three presidential advisory committees, as well as on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Bioethics Advisory Board for the Grand Challenges in Global Health Initiatives. He's the author and editor of many seminal books and articles on science and science policy, and he has written the new book, The Body Politic, The Battle Over Science in America. And Mr. Moreno, we're very glad to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, well, let's talk about really the, the war raging over the science in America. How big of an issue is this, especially with the upcoming uh, election year? Well, that's a great question, and I think actually we've already seen some of what I talk about in the book um, manifest itself in the in the primary on the Republican side. Um, and one example that comes to mind was the really surprising disagreement a few months ago between Congresswoman Bachman and Governor Perry about uh, vaccinating young girls for human papillomavirus. Um, so this is a, obviously a, you know important from the point of view of uh, uh, future health and uh, avoiding cancers in girls, um, but uh, it also raised interesting questions about how far government should go, what government's role is in uh, asking or requiring in the case of the um, order that Governor Perry uh, issued in, in Texas, uh, requiring that uh, there be these vaccinations offered and paid for by the state. And I think we're going we're gonna to see a lot more of this um, in the future, not only in the cancer vaccines area, and there are going to be a lot more cancer vaccines. But I think more generally what we've seen uh, in the cloning and stem cell debates the last 10 years and uh, other issues that come up um, often in individual states that we may not notice, um, like um, how many, what kinds of cells uh, you should be able to put in animals, uh, laboratory animals, um, cells that may have a human source, and what the implications of that would be. Um, we've only begun to scratch the surface in terms of uh, whether government and to what extent government should be able to uh, monitor, regulate uh, genetic uh, engineering. Uh, uh, the whole reproductive area is, uh, is complicated enough with abortion, but when you start talking about uh, what kind of children we should make and who should be able to decide, uh, the traits of our children. We've only started, and this is this is going to unfold over the next 30, 40, 50 years. And part of the issue is really that candidates have a misunderstanding of uh, many of the issues of science or that they believe that the, the public at large does and they just can use it for their own advantage. Well, I think uh, the, pr the problem is usually identified by my friends in the science world uh, as, gee, if only, you know, if only everybody in Congress had a Ph.D. Uh, in, in some science, we'd be fine. Uh, I think actually think that in the American context, and the, the book talks a lot about this, um, the situation is more complicated than that. 
on the one hand, we you know, we were the only country that's ever been founded by a bunch of scientists. Uh, if you think about the founders, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Franklin, uh, Washington was a surveyor. Alexander Hamilton wanted to be a doctor uh, before he became uh, General Washington's aide. Uh, but uh, and, and our country also continues to be incredibly dependent on science and technology. So the the MIT economist Solo published a paper years ago in which he showed that half of the growth of the American economy since the Second World War has been based on innovations in science and technology. So we are, uh, you know, we're a big country for science, and you can't even imagine America without modern science. We wouldn't have survived World War II uh, without without big physics. Uh, and we wouldn't have been able to conquer the West without engineering in the 19th century. But uh, the, the, the new challenge is, uh, is the fact that biology is the dominant science of the 21st century. I think pretty much everybody agrees that's where science has gone. And that poses an interesting problem for Americans who, although you know, we, are, we love science and technology, we worship Steve Jobs, and we love new gadgets, and we, you know, we're proud we got to the moon first, um, on the other hand, we're also very traditional people, uh, and we we have some traditional values. And biology bumps up against those values in a way that en engineering and physics don't. So I think what you see in in the American presidential campaign cycles repeatedly is not so much uh, as is often portrayed as sort of science anti-science. I think that's simplistic. I think what's more interesting is really going on is where do Americans stand with regard to the, the power of the new biology? Um, that's why I, I was talking before about the question of how, you know, what government's role should be uh, in, in regulating science. The, the kind of vigorous debates we've had in the last 10 years uh, about science, we did not have 50 or 60 years ago. And we didn't have them in the 19th century. Uh, when to be a great engineer was, you know, or a great inventor was very much what it is to be an American. Uh, people aren't so sure that the the power of the new biology is really consistent with American values. When it comes down to biology, it's it a lot of the issues that perhaps attack a lot of religious ideas. I mean, evolution, oh, yeah. of course, being and, absolutely, yeah. and and the age of the Earth, you know, sort of related to the creationism question. Um, but here again, I'm a little bit of a contrarian. Uh, even though I'm a big pro-science person, uh, um, I think that what, when many uh, progressives um, stereotype evangelicals, for example, as being anti-science, I think that's, um, that lacks subtlety. Because uh, if you really look at the very few surveys of conservative Christians that have been done about science, you see that they are not anti-science in general. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, they, they love the idea of creation science, right? Everybody wants, everybody loves science. Everybody wants to, to, to appropriate the mantle of science. Um, they, conservative Christians have specific worries about, uh, about certain areas, like the age of the earth, like creationism, um, like the dignity and status of the human embryo. And I actually argue in the book that um, what conservatives worry about in America is not so much science, as scientists, uh, that they worry about the moral compass of scientists who have all this power, who who get all this government money or money from companies, you know, private industry, who seem to speak in a, a kind of rarefied, you know, esoteric language that most of us don't understand. Um, 
So it's really an anxiety about the power of scientists, the scientific community, as much as it is, or if not more, than a concern about, in general, where science is taking us. And that actually goes back to the very beginnings of the Enlightenment. Um, even one of the fathers of the Enlightenment, Francis Bacon, uh, in his Utopia, the New Atlantis, uh, has a passage which is fascinating, which he, this is back in the early 17th century, uh, in which he talks about the, the governors of this utopia of his, who are scientists, keep some secrets from most people uh, because they're too important for most people to have these secrets. So this is not something new. This is, uh, as America is a child of the Enlightenment, this goes back, way back, hundreds of years, this sort of anxiety about how much the scientists are keeping for the rest of us. And do you think that's really a, a, a fault of scientists for not engaging the public in any reasonable way? Or? You know, I think there's uh, plenty of blame to go around. And you know this you know, better than I do. You can't always get them to be on radio shows. Uh, you know, they, they don't like to necessarily talk to the press when controversial questions come up. They feel that their answers are going to be simplified. And they're not entirely wrong. They are going to be simplified. Um, but I, I do think that scientists have too much shied away from uh, popular communication. There are t attempts to change this now. Uh, the American Association of Sciences are interested in this problem, science communications, you know, and uh, the National Academy of Sciences actually works with Hollywood to have more accurate depictions of science and films. So there are some, you know, a lot of good things happening, I think, but there's still a certain aversion in the scientific community to being simplified and misunderstood and perfectly understandable. On the other hand, you know, we, we're not doing a great job, and this is no secret, uh, we're not doing a great job in, in producing future scientists um, in this country. And, you know, at some point, we're going to have a real crisis. So uh, we think one, one option is we have to think more about, um, about visas for promising young scientists and technologists. That idea is not original with me, but it's a big problem. And uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, there's plenty of land to go around, as is usually true, uh, with these big issues. Um, it's partly, I think, the scientific community uh, has some reluctance in, in communicating with the public uh, and spending its time doing that. But I also think we have to, at some point, we're really going to have to, to address seriously this problem of, of science education. You know, oftentimes a lot of these issues which are raging in, are, are really resolved within the community itself, so it's, it's tough yeah. to project that to the public in any kind of unified view that exists. That's right, and, and you know, science is, uh, is the only way that we know that we can correct our mistakes. Um, you know, we, through, through experimentation and demonstration and, and do it publicly. But on, on the other hand, um, I think people have this intuitive understanding that science can do that, is self-correcting in a way that, you know, our philosophical ideas are not. Um, and so they really have high expectations from science. And when science disappoints, as it almost always does, right, because there's always some new experiment uh, that causes doubts um, and sends scientists back to the drawing board, then we kind of look at that as non-scientists and say, well, gee, you know, they're scientists. They're supposed to know the facts. They're supposed to be able to get it right. So there's this, you know, this fact about science, the way scientific method works, is that it does work uh, based on, on what the philosopher uh, Popper years ago called conjectures and refutations. You know, you have a hypothesis, you do an experiment, and you almost hope that it doesn't work so that you can try out a new hypothesis. That's the way 
knowledge grows at its edges. But it's it can be very frustrating when we, you know, even recently, uh, I know you followed this, the, the possibility that there are some uh, particles that move faster than the speed of light. Um, and this is, of course, the experiments that are going on in, uh, at CERN, the big uh, super collider in Switzerland. Um, you know, the idea that maybe there are some particles that move fast in the speed of light, when we've been told that, that that's it, you can't do that. Uh, you know, nothing is sacred in science, which is the terrific thing about science. It's one of the reasons that it's so powerful, so effective in dealing with the world around us. But uh, it's also really disconcerting. Um, that nothing is sacred in science. That's the nature of inquiry. But it's, it's, it is kind of hard for people to get their arms around. Which, in, in a way, makes it uh, malleable then for politicians to go in and either attack it or usurp it for their... their... It does. Oh. And, right. And, you know, there are two things interesting about this. One is uh, every politician would love to be on the right side of science. Uh, the other interesting thing is that they're also able almost always to find a scientist somewhere or somebody who can be labeled a scientist who agrees with their political position. Uh, so I find actually, and I spent a lot of time in Washington and talking to legislators and their staff, I find that uh, politicians really do want to be on the right side of science. Um, and they really do seek out expertise. Uh, they know that, you know, in the long run, uh, that is better for them and their constituents to have the facts and have the facts as right as you can get them. On the other hand, um, they also have had experience with being embarrassed and disappointed by science and scientific experts. Uh, and they do have to deal with a two-year or four-year or six-year election cycle. And science often goes way beyond two years and four years and right six years. It often takes 10 or 20 years to prove something. Uh, so they they do uh, want to be on the right side of science, but because of the inherent ambiguity in scientific conclusions and many scientific conclusions, and the tenderness of science, um, you know they they often kind of default to finding the scientist who happens to support their political needs. Do you think that they weigh in those short term goals with the longer term vision that they have? You know, I think it's not short-term all the way. Um, it is often short-term, especially if there's a, you know, and as we've seen the last 10 or 20 years, a big cultural issue like cloning and stem cells. Uh, then they will definitely go for the, for the short-term shot. Um, but um, if you think about all the funds that are expended on the science, you know, the National Science Labs, the government-funded science labs, or National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, um, there's another there's another reality going on here, you know, which is uh, even the even the people who uh, the politicians who can be the most critical of science uh, from a rhetorical standpoint, you know, when it's convenient, they're still voting for money to send to do basic science that's government sponsored. I mean, you can't even imagine the scientific community now in America without government money. And I'm not, and you can go well beyond, you know, National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health, go to the Defense Department, the Department of Energy, Homeland Security. There's a lot of science, huge amounts, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of applied science being done by those departments. And even though some people would like to, you know, shut down the Department of Energy, for example, somebody would have to do those things because just 
to, in the case of BOE, because of our nuclear arsenal. Uh, so, and as we worry about bioterrorism, you know, we have to be, we have to be in the top tier in biology, and, and of course, for jobs and for the future of American prosperity, you can't do without science. So, what I'm saying to you is, there's, uh, you know, there's one narrative, there's one rhetoric, uh, set of uh, rhetorical positions that has to do with short-term cultural issues, but underlying that, there's a big imperative to keep government engaged in science in America. Then there's no option. We can't be number two in science in the 21st century if we hope to compete. Uh, how much do you think that international politics then plays into uh, the biology, politics of biology and science? Yeah, that does, and, and it does in a big way, I think, in a number of levels. Um, you know, one, one level is intellectual property, right? I mean, you know, we, we love science and discovery, but there's also a lot of money. Uh, and so um, who gets to... Uh, control intellectual property, how we how we decide to uh, you know allocate uh, the rights to new ideas. Uh, uh, the World Trade Organization is um, we don't normally that's not part of our usual dinner conversation, but the World Trade Organization and its system of intellectual property is hugely important uh, to the American economy. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, in the stem cell era. You know what's going on in embryonic stem cell research in Asia is, and in some places in the Middle East, like Israel, uh, and in 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 Britain to some extent, uh, and a few other places, uh, is outpacing us in some ways. Um, so you know that creates a certain pressure uh, to be competitive. Um, on the other hand, we also know that there are terrible abuses of. Uh, research subjects in the developing world, um, partly it seems um, because of the aggressiveness of uh, international pharmaceutical firms. Uh, so um, we definitely are affected by the international environment, and science itself is more and more globalized. Right? I mean, um, there are there are people, teams of scientists in the U.S. who are working on, say, a particular uh, set of genes. And they're uh, they're working very closely with a team in China, uh, or in Sweden, uh, or uh, in uh, or in Israel. Uh, science is really globalized now, especially biology. Um, and you can set send a set of of, of numbers uh, instantly uh, that a laboratory on the other side of the world can convert into a database of chromosomes. So um, there. There's a new community of science because of the instant, instantaneous nature of the internet. Uh, at the same time, there are these this, this competition for intellectual property. So it's all um, you know. All these are are, are tensions that push up against each other. Your, your book is very thorough. It goes into a lot of different issues in, in biotechnology, stem cells, and bioengineering. Do you, do you think that in politics in general that most politicians are progressive with respect to science, except for just these key areas? That well, I, I, I think so. Uh, and again, that's you know not a not an idea that you'll maybe hear um, a lot of people like me expressing. But I think you know, so, again, if if you if you believe that. Uh, the United States needs to protect itself, that we need to get new jobs, and uh, that we need to kind of sustain a sense of the future, you know, which is also always so important uh, 
as part of the American civic narrative. You know, we're always looking to the future, the wilderness, the frontier. Yeah, I think most politicians will buy, buy into that ultimately. Um, um, so, and, and of course, science has its own, you know, imperatives. Uh, it's constantly breaking new ground. Uh, and, and ultimately, although much of the new ground that it breaks, especially in biology, as we've been talking about, is a little scary, um, it, it's finally, I think, unavoidable uh, that uh, that it's, it's going to create new possibilities. And the question then is, you know, again, who who regulates those possibilities? Uh, how are they controlled? Or are they controlled by the state or somebody else? But in the long run, uh, I'm, you know, there's no American politician who could afford to bet against the need for the country to be strong in science. The disagreement is, again, how much of a role government should have, uh, what values should shape the direction of science, not about the need for a powerful scientific community in itself. Uh, what, what's your impression of what the, uh, the public at large would like? Well, I think the, the public is mostly preoccupied right now, of course, you know, as we're in this election cycle, uh, with, uh, with the future of the economy. Uh, and, and here we, you know, we talk about investment in science and technology. Um, there's a, this is a real problem because we, 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 we need to continue to invest in infrastructure, uh, that, again, will maybe not pay off with new ideas that will have you know, create new wealth, new value for 10 or 20 years. Um, and that's a tough argument to make, you know, when the, the country is so much in debt. Um, so I, I, think, I think people uh, kind of understand that basic conflict between the need to invest in our, in our infrastructure, in, in particular in science, um, but on the other hand, you know, is that, is that money well spent? Um, the the thing about science, of course, is that you can spend as much as you want. You know, there's no there's no necessary limit to how much you science. Um, it's something like the great cathedrals. Uh, you know, the Middle Ages. Uh, you could spend as much as you wanted on a great cathedral. You could have as many Michelangelos and great brilliant architects as you could find. Uh, science is sort of the cathedral of the of the modern world. There's no necessary limit how much you can invest. Um, so there we have the problem of you know deciding what the smartest, most targeted investments would be, and and that's something that is discussed in Washington a whole lot. Now one you know one final note on that point: um, there is no metric. There's no measure that government uses about whether its investments have paid off or not in science. Um, sometimes you'll see uh, committees in Congress refer to the number of patents that came out of a certain you know, investment that the government made in, in grant programs or uh, patents are common or the number of new scientific papers that came out because government invested in a certain area. But there's no standard metric or measure of success in science. Um, Unless it's in pretty these pretty raw terms like you know patents or papers, uh, and that's probably something we need to address because that will help us figure out, I think, what the best investments would be in science in the future. And I think we're going to have to be more targeted than we have been in the 20th century when we had so we had all the money. 
uh, and all this. Every, we had the, the bulk of the science that's changed can't be top in every field now in the 21st century. We're going to have to share and collaborate, and we're probably going to have to pick our targets more. A long and ongoing dialogue trying to switch. Yeah, which well, I, I think this is, you know, one of the key challenges for the country in the 21st century uh, is where we invest in science and technology, and it's not, uh, it's not like the, the late 20th century. Uh, you know, we're just not the only guys on the hill anymore. Um, and it is going to be a big challenge. Well, Jonathan Moreno is the uh, David and Lynn Silfen University professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and he is the author of the new book, The Body Politic, The Battle Over Science in America. And Professor Moreno, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the uh, Grok Science Show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.